From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is part two of my conversation with Sean Amirati investor, entrepreneur, and author of the international bestseller, The Science of Growth. If you missed out on part one, well, the obvious thing to do would be to go back and listen to that first so that this half of the conversation has context. Uh, What we've been talking about to this point in part one of the episode was the science of massive growth catalyzing events. Sean and his students at Carnegie Mellon University undertook a research project several years ago where they looked at what do companies, what distinguishes companies when they seemingly have the same or very similar characteristics, they get to product market fit, and then one takes off, but the other doesn't. So for example, we all know LinkedIn, but many of us, myself included, have never heard of Spoke. Both companies got to product market fit. One company is still thriving today. And that's what uh, our conversation has centered around. Now, part one, we emphasized sort of the buildup to what gets someone to these catalyzing events, these growth catalyzing events. Uh, We talked about the four prerequisites for success. We defined what a catalyst is in this situation. So now let's dive deeper into some specific examples and uh, and within the specific types of catalyzing events. So... We identified there are also four types of growth catalyzing events, and they are viral growth, drafting off platforms, double trigger events, and optimizing algorithms. So what we're going to do in this part two of the episode is go through each of those four types of growth catalyzing events and talk through examples, companies that did it well, companies who looked similar but did not do it so well and did not last or did not thrive as much. So Sean, welcome back first off. Thank you for joining me for part two. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with viral growth. Um, I think when people hear the idea of going viral, you know, their idea is, oh, you know, we put up a video on YouTube and it got a million hits overnight. Now, I think that is an example of viral. I just don't think it's something that necessarily everyone can bank on as it's not really a strategy. Uh, and I think very few accomplish. And oftentimes I think viral, it's like maybe you saw it when it got a million views, but it might've been a slow crawl to get there. So can you explain viral growth as you see it through your research and talk through uh, an example or two of a company that uh, achieved this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right. I think we tend to think virality or viral growth. And obviously like these terms are more loaded in 2020 than they were in 2016 <laughs> when we wrote the book. Right? Viral uh, growth. <laughs> viral growth. Pe- people understand uh, the math <laughs> a bit more today than they did uh, than they did in 2016. But you know, as it relates to kind of viral growth as a scaling your business strategy, right? People tend to think that the internet is sort of what invented this phenomenon. And it's just not true, right? People have been referring products to people for a long, long time. What's unique is that the internet and sort of this digital communication in general has allowed us to track how effective that is as a sales channel and then optimize that work, right? So regardless of what uh, company you're talking about, when you're doing viral growth, I think the other thing that's important to point out is exactly where you were going. This often feels like an overnight success story, but in fact, what it really is, is it's a grind. You're continuing to grind away. You're continuing to optimize. You're continuing to test things. And eventually you get to a point where every time someone refers a product to another customer, 
additional new customer to the solution, right? That's every time they refer a product to another customer and that customer signs up. So this is the referral and the sign up. Then that new customer will refer and sign up at least one additional customer. So you have more than one new customer for every new customer that you refer or what's called a, a viral coefficient of greater than one. Right. Mm -hmm. And that used to be really hard to figure out because if you're talking about your grandfather talking to his buddy at the, you know, pub on a Friday night, you know, that's, that's not a, there's no ability to actually measure that. There's no ability to optimize that. There's no ability to sort of influence the message. But what the internet's made unique is all of a sudden now this technique that's worked for a long time, we can now measure and optimize. And I think that's what's interesting. And, and then when you think about that, what that allows these businesses to do is to what I would call grind or just continue to, to tweak all the different, both like the way you're presenting the message to them, how you're prompting them to, to do the referral, what the text or what the, the conversation around that referral is, so that each step along that way, you're increasing the, the effectiveness of the number of invitations sent out the conversion rate of those invitations or how quickly those people go from getting an invitation to converting and sending out their batch of invitations which are sort of the three levers that have been the levers for a long time, but now all of a sudden there's transparency. You can actually look into it and see it. And when you see, especially a lot of these um, social platforms, a, a, a Facebook Friendster or a LinkedIn spoke, right? What you end up seeing is that these are inherently network businesses and therefore optimizing the virality of the, the uh, communication becomes just an incredible way to catalyze and ultimately sort of optimize the growth rate of those businesses. I think I recall hearing, and I believe it was in the, the social media dilemma documentary that just came out on Netflix, where one of the original product heads at Facebook mentioned their goal or, or like their measure of success was if one person can, I think, get seven friends in the first 10 days, I, I might have the, the numbers backwards on that, or, or it's very close to that. That meant that person was going to stick around on the platform and become more or less a power user. Yep. And it wasn't about individually getting as many one people on the platform, but just can you get one person to seven friends and then that would expand their business greatly. Yeah. And there's interesting counterintuitive things around that as well, right? So most people's intuition would be if that's what you're optimizing for, then you want to go as broad as possible, as quickly as possible. But what Facebook realized is that, and what frankly Friendster did not, is that when you're going broad like that, you just dramatically increase the chance of you showing up on that platform and not knowing anybody on the platform. Right. And so one of the things that Facebook did really well, right, is they constrained who was able to use Facebook to these kind of tiers where that increased the probability that when you showed up, people you knew showed up, right? So it started as a social network for Harvard and then for other schools like Harvard, right? So other Ivy Leagues and, and Stanford. And they sort of went school by school. And they actually also did something really interesting, which is they aggressively managed the wait list of how they were going to add the next school by mm. people who were high school friends of other colleges that were on Facebook already, they were requesting, hey, my friends are on here already. I'd like to be part of it. Again, getting to your point of you know, making sure that there's no nodes on the network when, you're, when they sign up. Uh, there's a funny example of this for what it's worth, which is when, um, so Facebook tended to go kind of Harvard, Stanford, other Ivies, these other really good schools, right? And then they actually went to Penn State, which for people who aren't familiar with Penn State, it's actually a very good school in central Pennsylvania, incredible school, but it's a big land Ten grant school. Big Ten school. It's <laughs> like the, the number of students at Penn State versus the number of students at, you know, your kind of Ivy League school, it's just, it's an, it's an order of magnitude different, right? And when they flip the switch on to turn Penn State email addresses on, everybody was convinced that they were being hacked for a couple of minutes because they just <laughs> they had like they had thought they knew what they were doing right and, and in many ways they did but it's like oh wow turns mm. out a, a land-grant big 10 school looks really different than harvard or stanford right sure. and so but but it's the same dynamic you're talking about and so so you're optimizing for invite sent conversion and then 
And this time to send the next time for that customer to become viral themselves becomes really important as well, right? So time from when you get the invite to when you convert and then start inviting your friends, that becomes the other critical part of it. And to your point, if you can make sure that when someone shows up, they know other people, you're going to significantly increase the speed at which they're an engaged user and start inviting their own friends to the platform. There's a couple of things I want to point out and, and kind of add follow-up questions to, and that is to give, to give some timeline context here. I remember my senior year of high school, some of my friends who were also seniors in high school creating Facebook accounts. So it had dripped beyond college at that point. So you were outside of college, but it was still Correct. a student network. And it had like, okay. I think it was just by senior year was when it got to high school. And I remember kind of being confused by it. I didn't get an account. And I, I remember I created an account after going to orientation weekend or whatever it was called, like, you know, freshman orientation, like a month before you actually move in yep. uh, to college. And, I, and what's funny is I remember like asking everyone in my little orientation group for their AIM screen name, uh, <laughs> calling sure. back to what our conversation was in, the, in part one. And then everyone was like, well, why don't you have Facebook? And so then I came out of that orientation and I created a Facebook account and started connecting with these people who I had just had orientation week with, plus my high school friends. While I was in high school, I think I remember by my sophomore year, I remember hearing about something called MySpace. I remember, I think it was junior year, people playing around on something called Zanga and LiveJournal. And the reason I'm bringing these up is because all of these platforms did have a lot of users, right? And, and I think what you're saying is product market fit can be achieved, not doing these strategies, but it's how do you go beyond product market fit and really become a company that has lasting power and dominates everyone else, right? That's right. And, I, and, and some of it, so some of the companies that you're talking about there, for what it's worth, are part of the studies. Some are not. We'll get to the, the MySpace example in a minute when we get to drafting off platforms. But, um, but LiveJournal was, was part of the movable type network of properties, right? So that was a competitor to, to WordPress more than a competitor to, to Facebook, right? It's more of a publishing platform than a social communications platform. But I think what you see in both of those, right, is that the choices that those companies made that were different than the choices that companies succeeded ended up resulting in one scaling up and, other, and another stalling out. And it's tempting. I think I talked about this when we started. We sort of had this as, you know, get to product market fit and then run your business like a scaling business. But when you actually look at these case studies, you see the, the sort of middle step of like, okay, well, something happens between product market fit and operating it in this hyperscale mode. And it's not exactly the same thing in each of these cases, but they fit into these four buckets. So we've talked about viral growth, um, but th there's obviously three other ones. And it's not that every company would do all four of them. In fact, nobody did all four of them, but they, would, they tend to do one or, or two of these. And I think what Facebook did incredibly well was the virality. The other thing Facebook did really well was their first interaction. You almost, if you go back to the prerequisites mm -hmm. for a minute, their first interaction was so good and so tight because of some of the things we talked about. It really enabled them to have that great viral growth. And I think in all four cases, you'll see that fourth step in the prerequisites is really the springboard into these catalyzing events. And that gets to, I think, some of the stuff that you do with startups as well, where you help them think about well, how do they talk about that? How do they talk about this from the perspective of the user, not the perspective of the entrepreneur, right? Like, you know, Mark wasn't saying, let me tell you how cool it is to connect uh, all the world's uh, mm -hmm. people to his Facebook members. He was certainly talking about that when he was talking to investors and he was talking right. to employees, things like that. But he was saying, hey, when you go to college orientation, let's, let's make sure that you can, you know, stay up to date with all the, all the friends you make there so that when you come back in a month, you know, you have friends and you're ready to, to plug into your college experience. Well, and I was thinking about this last night before we were going to record this morning, and it occurred to me how much, and to call back to one of your prerequisites from the last episode, which is founder vision, how much it ends up actually influencing the message if the vision is clear, right? And, and Zuckerberg's internal vision was connect the world. Um, you know, maybe at first it was 
kind of, it was whatever. He was just kind of messing around. Then when he realized it had something, that's when he said, okay, we can connect the world here. But if you look at how It was much faster than people appreciate as well for what it's worth. Like one of the things that people, when when this first came out, I I did did a number of interviews around the book and people said, well, I mean, remember that interview on CNBC? He he had no idea what he was building. He was building, he even calls it a college social network at that point. I was like, go back and rewatch the video today and you'll see that like he absolutely is talking about a much bigger vision now he's broken that vision down into these steps because he understands you got to have a great first interaction you got to make sure that mm. there that you actually know people when you show up on these social sites right you know, it's not a zero to one where you just in is there from the beginning i think this is the magic of entrepreneurship right it's massive vision followed by lots of iterative experiments to refine that massive vision yeah. with so like that practicality you, at like the at like the front end of it that's exactly right <laughs> that's exactly right you know i teach the lean entrepreneurship class at carnegie mellon and people will often say to me like why well, i don't like lean entrepreneurship like i want big ambitious visions like no no the, the Lean Start methodology does not replace vision with experiments. It says, take your vision and then run experiments around that vision. That's, I think, why we call it pivoting, not traveling, right? One foot is planted in your vision and the other foot is iterating around based on what you hear from the market. Yeah. And, you know, for, furthering on that note, as I was thinking about this last night, I think if you really think about the initial success of Facebook and, and getting, to, getting to that product market fit, it could have been so easy for them to be like, we could be another Shutterfly and our product could be selling photo books off of all these photos you've uploaded. But the vision was not a photo sharing platform. Photo sharing was a function of the vision of connection. And I recall, I don't know if it's still the case, but I recall at least maybe... Uh, yeah, back in 2007, 2008, because I did write a paper in my fr- freshman year of college that touched on Facebook a little bit uh, for a different purpose. And I remember I had cited the exact copy of the homepage, the login page at that point. And the messaging on it was something like, Facebook is a place to like hang out with and connect with your friends. It wasn't saying Facebook is where you can upload photos and post updates on your life, you know? But I think this gets to your grinding point as well. So later in the book, not in the prequels, we'll talk about being data informed, not data driven. And that's actually a quote I got from uh, Adam Masseri when he was just a, a product manager on the Facebook photos team. And what Facebook realized was exactly what you're saying. Like the service, the value of the service was connecting with your friends. But what they also knew back then was photos became the atomic unit that helped people connect. And today I would argue that's videos, but back, back sure. at that point, it was photos. And early in Facebook's history, they only had one photo on the site. It was your profile photo. And what they would see is people would come multiple times a day and change their, their profile picture. And then they're like, okay, well, let's get people to allow them to upload massive amounts of photos. This is atomic unit of connecting. And what they realized was the more photos they could get you to upload, not only the more engaged you would be with the platform, but also the more engaged your friends would be with the platform, Mm. right? So it's both of those things. And when Facebook realized that, then the question became, okay, how do we dramatically drive up the number of photos people are uploading, right? And now we get back to this grinding process again. And so they optimize and optimize and optimize. And then they realized, wait a minute, a certain percentage of our users don't realize they can upload more than one file at a time. Hmm. So they did something counterintuitive, right? They added a screen which told them, hey, if you hold down the shift key, <laughs> you can upload more than one photo, right? You see this dramatic spike yeah. in, the, in the number of photos uploaded, right? To me, this is this blend of being data informed, not data driven. But photos, to your point, like they're this atomic unit of these social services that become really important. It's why when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars, People thought that was crazy at the time, but I suspect this history of knowing how important photos were is part of what mm-hmm. informs someone like Mark saying, you know what, a billion is actually a steal for a, a business like this. Yeah, I also think, a total hypothesis here, they saw the Facebook platform was getting more complex and they saw this how there's still attractiveness and simplicity, which Instagram had at the time, and it's gotten a little bit more complex now, but it's still largely 
much simpler to use because there's, there's just less going on. It was mobile first, right? Yeah. Which at the time Facebook was not. And, and you know, this is a different conversation. But you know, the, the quick other punchline here right, is remember, you're talking about 1% of the company. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a relatively smart head at that kind of calculation as well. Let's talk about the next part, which is drafting off platforms. And I, I think this is my favorite, but what is drafting off platforms and, and, and who can we point to as yeah. in this case? Lots of good examples here, but, um, but probably a, a fun one that people will remember, and I think it illustrates the point well, would be the YouTube Rever example, right? So uh, I am sure you syndicate parts of this content to YouTube. I'm pretty sure you yeah. don't do a lot on, on Rever these days. Um, <laughs> so, but when you think about YouTube, right, one of the things that the team at YouTube were masters at was, okay, where do people have this problem of wanting to put videos on their site but don't know how to do it? And one of the really popular examples would be putting it on your MySpace page. So, you know, you'd mentioned MySpace page earlier, like you could, we could certainly have done Facebook MySpace instead of Facebook Friendster. Like in effect, it was really kind of all three of those competing for this communication channel. The MySpace example gets a little tricky because it, it sort of spans this broadcast and communication platform, right? So it's sort of a little bit of WordPress and a little bit of, of Facebook, but, but anyways, YouTube, one of the things they did really well was they made it super easy to embed YouTube videos on MySpace pages, even for people who didn't know how to program. You know, most people who had MySpace pages, that's how they learned HTML. And only a subset of the MySpace users knew how to do it. And so the easier you could teach them how to put, you know, embed the HTML on the page, the better. And YouTube made it really easy to do that. And they also made it really easy for other people who came to a MySpace page, saw a video to realize, oh, I can grab this and put it on my MySpace page as well, right? Mm -hmm. So the question you want to ask yourself when you're talking about drafting off platforms is, where is there a large community of engaged users who have the problem my product solves, but don't yet know how to solve it? Or maybe they're solving it today kind of by hacking a solution together, right? And yeah. that's the sort of and if you can find those communities, then you're golden. So YouTube on top of MySpace, PayPal on top of eBay, right? You've got lots of people doing transactions on eBay, and then they're trying to figure out how to send money back and forth. Yeah. Well, PayPal comes in and says, hey, we can solve that problem for you. Uh, YouTube, Which I remember, sorry to cut you off there. No, I remember being an early user of eBay. And I think my first purchase, I remember getting a cashier's check and sending it in the mail. <laughs> And I was, I, know, I, was, I was very young at the time, but I do remember that being a thing. And then I actually, it's funny because I initially remember when the PayPal thing came about and it was kind of like featured as like, hey, you can do this. I do remember, because I was still young and I needed like parents' permission to create accounts and stuff. I remember my mom saying, no, don't put your credit card on the internet. It's not safe. <laughs> sure. Well, they had to do a lot of things to get people comfortable with that, right? I mean, PayPal... The, the eBay, PayPal was part of it. PayPal also did some really interesting things around paying people to sign up for the service around viral growth as well. Mm. But, but when you think about YouTube on top of MySpace or PayPal on top of eBay, you know, what you're seeing is massive engaged users have a problem, YouTube and, and PayPal step in and solve it. Now, the thing you want to be, there is an important caution on the drafting off platforms as well, which is you want to make sure that that's not the only place people get value from your product. Right, because mm -hmm. so both MySpace would want to would end up trying to launch their own video player, and eBay would launch their own payments product before ultimately eBay would buy PayPal, yeah. and YouTube would frankly ultimately eclipse MySpace and and outkick the coverage there, right? And in both those cases, what you see is that's because the service was valuable not only on those platforms they're drafting off of, but also on all these other platforms. You know, the example of the Twitter API, I think, is a great example of where a lot of people did not, and a few did kind of follow this heuristic, right? So lots of interesting people built things on top of the, the Twitter platform, but only a small percentage of them figured out how to add value outside of the Twitter ecosystem as well. And ultimately, that becomes a choke point. Like if, you're, if all you're doing is adding value there, then the strategy won't work. But if you can use that community who has this problem as a way to catalyze your growth, but then make sure you have product market fit outside of it as well, then you can end up in this really interesting situation, right? Where all of a sudden you're 
grabbing users from that platform that you're drafting off of, but still continuing to scale up as an independent company as well. In the YouTube example, you mentioned the other company that didn't make it far was Rever. And I, aside from our conversations and reading, reading the book, I have not ever heard of Rever. What I did learn in the book was this whole idea that Rever tried the MySpace play as well. Like they couldn't come to an agreement with MySpace in terms of service in that Rever was putting, they wanted to put pre-roll and mid-roll ads into those videos that could be embedded on MySpace. So Rever was really worried about lots of things at the same time, all of which made it really hard to focus on the, the most important things. And this gets more to the uh, sustainable long-term growth. But what's interesting is in the early phases, right, you've got this vision and you're doing lots and lots of experiments. At a certain point, when things start to work, you need to get more to like, here's our North Star metric, here's what we're running after, and we'll figure the other stuff out later. Rever kind of got to a similar point as YouTube, and, and rather than focusing on scaling and, and a certain subset of North Star metrics, kept doing lots of different things at the same time and sort of thrashing. So instead of saying, okay, let's just figure out how to make our videos ubiquitous on the internet, get the plugins working everywhere. There's like, okay, let's figure out our monetization model. Let's go sign kind of in a very business development 1.0 way. Let's go sign a bunch of contracts with a bunch of different third parties and you sort of add friction to the process there, right? And so, it's, so I think it was smart team did lots of things right, but I think ultimately was trying to do too many things. Whereas YouTube looks a lot more like a Facebook or a Mint or a, um, frankly, almost any of these, which is they're sort of focused on these critical North Star metrics when they enter that point and don't get distracted by a lot of these other things. And that distraction ultimately in the case of drafting off of the MySpace platform killed Rever because they lost that whole distribution uh, opportunity that allowed uh, YouTube to really end up becoming ubiquitous there. Yeah, and I, th I think there's a lesson here for a lot of the people who are building these kind of uh, user-based companies where monetization traditionally comes later, and that the, the lesson is monetization traditionally comes later. It's really hard to have success if you're trying to both make money off of, say, advertising, while also trying to grow the user base, because it just creates a high-friction product. Like what you need to do is, as I see it, get people on the platform, get them actively using it, get them coming back to it. And then you bring in that ad network after you have all that, because now the people are entrenched in the product. So I think that's absolutely true for businesses where the revenue model is obvious and it's something like advertising or, you know, a, a freemium model where there's an obvious premium feature to it. You know, mm. Duolingo is a Pittsburgh startup that's, you know, started by a, a colleague at Carnegie Mellon, right? So I sort of had a chance to watch, right? It was obvious, like, I mean, Duolingo raised, and this is public information, at a half billion dollar valuation as effectively a pre-revenue company. And the reason yeah. they did that was their user growth was so amazing. And it was so obvious that like, well, when they want to turn monetization on, it'll be very evident how you do the monetization. Not easy, but it'll, it'll be evident. And the right team laser focused on monetization at the right point will be able to figure it out. And certainly today it's a great business, yeah. not just a great social tool, right? But I think that advice, there's, there's two things that are important for entrepreneurs to keep in mind. One, I think many entrepreneurs underappreciate how fast your user base needs to be growing and how engaged your user base needs to be for that to be wise advice. Like that's point one. I mm, see a lot of people with yeah. sort of very mediocre growth that are like, man, I, you know, I went from a hundred users to 200 users to 300 users over the last three months. Like I'm not going to focus on monetizing. I've just got this amazing growth. It's like, that's not amazing growth. Yeah, it's gotta be like a hundred to a thousand to 10,000. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's gotta be this sort of exponential growth rate. Right. And you've got to have a business where it's obvious that you can monetize it that way. You know, a SaaS tool, an enterprise SaaS tool, I would not recommend running that playbook. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't fit. So, so I think that advice is situationally correct and was definitely right for YouTube, was definitely correct for Facebook, was definitely correct for Instagram for what it's worth, but, and was 
correct for Duolingo as a, as a more recent example, but is not necessarily correct for all the people listening to this. Yeah. Our third growth catalyzing event is what you call double trigger events. Talk us through this. Yeah. So this one is, is interesting because out of all the catalyzing events, this is the one that I think makes people most confused about this concept of launching, right? So most people will talk about these double trigger events as company X launched at event Y, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, Twitter launched at South by Southwest. Airbnb launched at the DNC convention, right? And, and yet what you realize when you actually go look at these cases is, in fact, those companies had been around for months and months before those events. Those events are what blew up the, the service, right? So, I mean, I was at South by the year Twitter launched there, and it was, it was absolutely contagious there. But, um, but it, it wasn't like it was new. I actually had signed up for Twitter before going to South by Southwest. Mm. Right. So it wasn't like I found out about it there. It's just that all of a sudden I sort of discovered the utility of, of Twitter when I was at the conference. And that was true for a lot of users because the problem people had at South by Southwest, Twitter solved in a really elegant way. And they were able to expose that to that community. And then just as importantly, that community went home and kept using it. Right. If everybody had enjoyed it at South by and then never used it again, that wouldn't be a double trigger event. And so yeah. it's these things that kind of choose to these sort of events that come along and blow it up. And I talk about this in the book, but we actually have used this with some of our portfolio companies because, you know, you can think about, OK, where is there? You know, the, the answer is not good startup, you know, ABC. You should also go to South by Southwest and launch there. In fact, I would argue for most companies, launching at South by Southwest is a terrible idea today, <laughs> right? And there's two reasons. One, you don't have the problem. Your startup probably doesn't solve the problems that people have at South by Southwest. And even if you do, like remember two years ago, the electric scooter, right? The marketing budget that you're going to need to spend to cut through the noise when literally the next marketer there is also buying Super Bowl ads. You know, you're not, it's not the, the sort of niche conference that it was in, uh, what was that? 2007 when Twitter. Yeah, not, I mean, now on. it's like, it's a phenomenon. It's now it's a phenomenon. Like and it's still fun. Thing, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been going since, you know, before the Twitter event and it, it used to be one kind of thing and it's, it's a different thing now. They're both fun, but they're very different. And, and frankly, the only thing that's the same is they're called South by Southwest and they're both in Austin and there's still a music and a film festival that goes on around the event. But <laughs> I mean, the year Twitter launched at South by Southwest for perspective, it was one hall of the convention center. That was the entirety of the conference, of the interactive part of it, right? Uh -huh. And the real question was during the day, if you were in a panel that was terrible, what other panel could you go to, right? And so you get on Twitter and be like, oh, uh -huh. this panel's bad. I'm going to go down the hall and see Matt Mullenweg talking about WordPress, right? Oh, that's not very good. Okay, I'll go see Ev talking here, right? And then at night, it was who's giving free beer out? And it turned out Twitter was really good at answering both of those questions. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the next year, Foursquare, again, good success there, um, although I'd argue not as catalyzing as Twitter. And then after that, it's basically been dominated by the big companies. But the question that startups can ask themselves is, okay, for my product or service, what's similar to the DNC convention or to South by Southwest for my service, right? So we had a, a company that we ultimately sold to Yelp called No Wait, which solved this problem for helping people find restaurant wait times for casual dining restaurants. And it turns out the Masters in Augusta, Georgia is the busiest restaurants in America are in Augusta during the Masters golf tournament. Mm. And so we basically took over Augusta, Georgia. We had 50 restaurants using our no wait platform. And it was this kind of, it was exactly what, it's, what I call it. it, was a catalyzing event for the business. And so that's how you think about it. So for your startup, the question to ask yourself is, okay, what, what event or what thing going on? Do people have the problem my startup solves? Can I come in and use this to dramatically increase the awareness about my product? It's probably not South by Southwest. It's probably not a political convention at this point, but, but there likely is an event where you can think about this, or at least for some subset of startups, this will be a good growth strategy for them. 
couple more comments and questions on this before we move into our fourth and final event type. Uh, first question to you is when we say double trigger events, do we literally mean it has to be a like an event or could the definition of event be stretched out to something beyond just like a conference, whether physical or virtual? Yeah, absolutely. It extends beyond that. The thing is those events are the easiest ones to engineer. The other types of double trigger events often are a little more opportunistic. So for example, uh, someone uploading the SNL skit Lazy Sunday to YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. YouTube couldn't engineer that. But when that happened, it was absolutely a double trigger event. Or in the case of the WordPress movable type, the movable type changing their open source licensing model and Matt Mullenweg at WordPress just stepping in mm. and using that to catalyze this growth. Here's the critical thing about the other two types though. Communication competencies become incredibly important for all three of those, but especially the second and third. And honestly, if I could rewrite the book, like if I could go back and do like, Science of Growth 2.0. This is something I would talk a lot more about, right? Because I think I I touch on it in the context of like, well, PR is changing. It's important to have your message type. But I think how you end up like WordPress or like YouTube in that situation is that you have your foundational elevator pitch extremely tight and you know how to react and play offense when those other types of double trigger events happen. I think it's true across the board, but especially for type two and type three of double trigger events. And I think most entrepreneurs today think about their elevator pitch, frankly, as like, well, this is something I need to get right so that I can raise investment dollars. Where in fact, what it really is, is this is the core building block upon which I can build all the different communications that are gonna be important for my business. And you see those different types of communications flowing through these different types of catalyzing events. My heart flutters when I hear you talk about the importance of an elevator pitch and how it influences all the other types of communication because it's, it's what I've been preaching for a few years now to all the companies that I work with and, and all the you know, workshops that I, that I teach on the, on the topic. One other thing I want to highlight within the Twitter example uh, and the double trigger event of the quote unquote launch at South by Southwest is coming back to what you just said about the communication being strong combined with founder vision is people interacted there, but they didn't leave saying Twitter is an event communication tool. It was Twitter is what I can go to, to be piped into what's happening in the world to add my voice to the conversation. Right. And I think not only usability, but then founder vision to not say, oh, we had a lot of success here. You know what we are? An event app. Well, in fact, it's a great point. And actually, a lot of users did say, oh, Twitter's really useful at events, but I don't think it'll be useful anywhere else. But I think it was that founder vision that was like, no, 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 no. And, and remember, Ev had created Blogger. So before he created Twitter, he created blogger, right? Which kind of created this infrastructure of knowing how people update. And one of the things they found in blogger is the more text boxes there were on the screen, the fewer things times people posted, right? So if you just had title and blog post, you get in a certain number of posts. If you had title, tags, blog post, the the text, you'd you'd have fewer posts, right? And so in, in many ways, Twitter was sort of the ultimate simplification of that. So I think they did an incredible job saying, no, this is bigger than just an event conversation platform. This is really a what we're doing in the world conversation, right? And if you look at the early tweets, it took the community some time to sort of figure that out and navigate through that. But once they figured that out, right, it ended up becoming this really interesting platform. And I think what was great is people came back from South by thinking, okay, that was fun for South by Southwest. But if if you've gone to a conference like that, especially what South by used to be versus what it is today. When you come home, there's a little bit of this like, oh, I was, you know, kind of post mountaintop experience, right? It's like, oh, that was so fun hanging out for mm-hmm. three or four days with people who really got the internet as well. And I think people saw it happening. It's like, oh, I can keep this conversation going on that Twitter so- platform yeah. that I was using. And, and then the rest is history, as they say. So, yeah. And 
I don't think they could have predicted, but it would ultimately become the primary mode of communication for the president of the United States, right? And I don't yeah, think they just, could have predicted that, but if they were just an event app, or if they saw themselves as an event app, they would not have gotten to that point. That's right. That's Let's exactly take right. a few minutes now to touch on the final type of growth catalyst, which is optimizing algorithm. The word of the day, every day in startup land is the algorithm. Sure. So what do we mean here? And, and I'm really I'm curious how you feel this has changed uh, in terms of like what the algorithms to follow are and what platforms to be looking at. Yeah. And similar thing. And like, if I could rewrite or if I could do a two point, like I would actually say optimizing new algorithms, mm. like, and I think frankly, it just the, the examples at the time we did it, there just weren't enough. There wasn't enough kind of tape to, to really think about this as well as you can think about it four years later, because as you say, algorithms run a much, much larger part of our life today than they did when, when I wrote this book. Right. But when you think about optimizing algorithms, what I'm specifically saying is there, when new algorithms emerge that make recommendations for people on products and services, before that algorithm becomes efficient, where it's doing a great job making the smartest recommendation across a large swath of different options, there's often an opportunity to arbitrage that algorithm at the beginning. So go back you know, 20 years, you could build some really interesting businesses arbitraging the Google search engine algorithm. Go back to when the iPhone and the App Store came out, you could do some really interesting arbitrage opportunities around the iTunes Store. You know, more recently, you've seen different social platforms where people have built interesting content businesses by optimizing the recommendations coming out of the Facebook newsfeed or uh, the Instagram algorithm, right? But, but by the time those algorithms become really efficient, it's hard for a startup to win because there's lots and lots of people playing on that. But what you see is for some startups where an algorithm emerges that matches well to their product and their sort of their vision or really all, all three of those pre first prerequisites, right? When it matches well there, if you can get onto that platform and optimize that algorithm before anybody else does, you can have just incredible growth. Right. So Mint did this. Mint is probably the poster child of this for what it's worth. It turns out financials being buying keywords for things like budgeting app are crazy expensive. But Mint figured out how to optimize the Google algorithm and then later how to optimize the iTunes App Store algorithm in a way where they just were able to pick up users so efficiently and so cost effectively because they were there before anybody else was, before other startups like Wasabi and before large companies like Intuit who would ultimately buy them, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's the game. And it, so I think today in, in 2020, the question becomes, okay, what are the new emerging algorithms and are there opportunities for me to, to optimize around that? The, the other point I would say is over the last year, more and more people have moved decision, kind of consumer decision journeys from offline to online. So there's also opportunities for things like optimizing the Yelp algorithm, optimizing the, the Uber Eats algorithm, right? Like there are other platforms where you can take decisions that have historically been done offline. They're now happening online and there's, there's algorithms driving those recommendations mm -hmm. that can make lots of different businesses more valuable by optimizing those. And to me, that's the real art of this fourth catalyzing event. Find the new algorithm and then figure out how to optimize it. So is the idea here that you're not necessarily saying build your own algorithm. What you're saying is in a way it's actually drafting off of, instead of drafting off another's platform, you're drafting off another's algorithm. A hundred percent. I mean, you could probably frame all of these as drafting off <laughs> blank. Right? Maybe so that's it's why like, it's my favorite. <laughs> it's like drafting off of a platform, drafting off of your existing user base. That would be viral growth, right? Yeah. Drafting off of an algorithm and then drafting off of just sort of a large platform of users, right? But in, in each of these cases, there's sort of this draft that you can pull, pull into. But yeah, I think, I think people underappreciate how important algorithms are. And then, you know, I mean, I, I teach at Carnegie Mellon, right? So I, the people who create a lot of those algorithms come through <laughs> come our class. It's, university. It's, yeah. it's very complicated. I get that. I am not recommending to everybody write their own algorithm, although for certain businesses that may make sense. More what I'm arguing is you need to understand what's happening there and figure out if there are these new emerging 
algorithms where you can get there before anybody else. And the problem, the, the challenge here is you may be wrong, but the cost versus the benefit is asymmetric, right? So like you might think, oh, this social platform is really important. I'm going to spend three months trying to optimize there. And then that platform may t- not take off. And it's like, okay, that was, that was, yeah. but the upside is massive, right? If you end up doing that on the next search op- optimization opportunity or the next app optimization opportunity, I mean, it can be the difference between changing the world and, and a modest success. So it's incredibly important to keep your eyes out for those algorithms and then go optimize when they enter your space. Every restaurant I talk to, I'm saying, look, you should be understanding how Yelp works how Google Maps works, how Uber Eats works, how Instacart works. Like you need to be figuring out these emerging algorithms that are going to change how people do offline transactions in the next couple of years. Do you have like advice then for like, you should be figuring out how these algorithms work. Like how does someone, I mean, aside from like posting their restaurant in that case on those things, how do they then go about quote unquote studying it? Yeah. So, so it's actually, when they first come out, it's actually typically much easier to decompose them than as the algorithms get sophisticated, right? Mm. It, it, think back like the early days of Google, it was pretty easy to figure it out, right? And that's why you had white hat and black hat optimization and, and you know, people were able to figure a lot of things out. Today, that algorithm is really complicated, it's really efficient, and there's a bunch of factors that go into it. And so, you know, you, you see people now moving back to more of the sort of one-on-one, like just write good content, make it readable, make your page load fast, right? Sort of more, more usability stuff. You think about the Yelp algorithm. I mean, there's actually some interesting academic papers from a professor in Texas on this where they've looked at how a one-star increase in your average Yelp ratings for a local restaurant will drive, you know, significantly more sales. So the difference between three-star and four-star and, and probably not surprisingly, this is... It, extremely impactful in um, local businesses more than national brands, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because of the sort of nature of where, you're, where that discovery is happening. I've got a couple more questions here before we begin our wrap up. One of them is if you look at an example with, with any of these types of events, right? If you take say Airbnb and the Democratic National Convention and being able to create a lot of extra housing, uh, for lack of a better word, for the people attending that. If you look at, for example, uh, optimizing like the right algorithm at the right time, I mean, how much do you feel luck plays into this? Because it's not like Airbnb could have predicted that it would move from indoors to inside of the Broncos stadium. That's right. So Airbnb couldn't have predicted that. But Airbnb could be prepared for that opportunity and ready to react when it happened, right? And to me, that's where the middle part of this book is different than the first and the third parts, right? In the middle part, this is more like, okay, keep your eyes open for these type of opportunities so that you can strike when they come across. And again, this is where, you know, I think it's relevant on this podcast, especially because of the work you do. This is where understanding kind of the, the foundational elements of your communication strategy becomes so important mm-hmm. because that's part of being able to react Uh, appropriately when these things happen as well. I also want to ask you about um, how do you feel this, these four types of catalyst types, the viral growth, the drafting off platforms, double trigger events and optimizing algorithms. How much do you feel that these are viable in a B2C environment versus a B2B environment? So so I do think they work in B2B environments as well. So we haven't talked about it much in this, but we did study Cvent versus Starsight, which is a a famous kind of SaaS, B2B SaaS business in the event management space. I also think, although it was not one of the companies we studied, you just can't miss what HubSpot did with advertising agencies, Mm -hmm. which in many ways was treating a bunch of these traditional ad agencies as almost their own group of people that they could catalyze their growth off of, right? It's kind yeah. of a, a, a platform, if you will, that was, was a bunch of users. So I think it does work in, you know, a variety of different settings like that, right? It does work in a different contexts like that in B2B and B2C. Um, I think that the first and the third, it's just like, this is how you run these kinds of businesses. But I think you, you need to contextualize it 
uh, for your startup when you're talking about these catalyzing events specifically though. Yeah. And even as you say that, what came to mind for me, a uh, popular example from a couple of years ago is uh, Drift. I don't remember at what conference, but they had one of the keynotes, which, you know, you probably got to put up some coin to be a lead sponsor for that, but they realized it was the perfect audience to be in front of. And then they had the perfect communication where they had, you know, this presentation that people still talk about today right. about how they, they gave their vision and, and back to vision for what the future of marketing would be. And they called it conversational marketing. Now, functionally, what is it? It's a chat bot, <laughs> but people were buzzing coming out of this about how we need to be doing conversational marketing and the ripple effect from that has been crazy ever since then. A hundred percent. Right. And it's a, this comes back to getting the message right so that you can be opportunistic when one of these catalyzing events becomes an opportunity for your startup. Uh, one last question here before we hit our wrap up, and that is um, most of, I think with the exception of maybe one or two companies that you and your team studied for your book um, were actually found, were companies founded by uh, white males. And yep. I know that's something that I'm going to guess at the time you were not intentionally being like, oh, let's only study these types of companies. As we know, that type of uh, unconscious bias can seep in and not just in hiring, but also all the way down to research. So uh, I guess my first question is, were you aware of it at the time? I'll guess the answer is no. But the answer uh, looking, is no there. Okay. Yeah. And, and then looking back now, how might you change that? You know, you've talked about a couple of times if you could do a 2.0 of this book. Uh, how might that change if you got a if you had a do over? Yeah, we'd definitely be more intentional about diversity and inclusion. And I think part of it is like the way we picked these companies. Bluntly, was I just said to the students, which example is interesting to you? And one of the things that I've focused on a lot over the last year is making sure that every student in my class can see him or herself in the examples that we're doing. So I'm much more intentional now about, um, you know, do I have a, a person of color as one of my guest speakers in a class? Um, do I have, you know, roughly 50-50 balance between male and female guest speakers? You know, when I'm picking students for programs like um, we do a, a, a fellowship in the lab by run at Carnegie Mellon, like, you know, making sure there's no unconscious bias in terms of, of who I'm selecting, making sure that my academic program manager who runs the lab kind of day to day for me, that she's involved in every interview as well. So there's different perspectives in involved in it. So I think it a hundred percent was just a, a, an unconscious, but certainly was a, was an oversight for sure. And it's something that we're Carnegie Mellon, like every school is trying to think about it. And, and myself personally, are spending a lot of time reflecting on this as it relates to, to the influence that I have. We also have a conference we're running in November of this year at the lab that I run. And we're just being very intentional about, okay, let's not miss this. Let's go through and make sure that we have the right representative group of speakers along all dimensions for the types of types of people we're highlighting, the stories we're highlighting, the case studies we're highlighting. And, you know, just it was... There's, there's no real excuse, but it's just a different time for sure. Mm -hmm. Where can our listeners find you, find the book and learn more? So you can find the book kind of wherever you, you find books. You know, it's on Amazon, <laughs> Barnes & Noble, local bookstores, all of that. Uh, it's also an Audible, which I know for a lot of people is an easier way to consume this kind of content. Uh, so that's been, that's been fun to, to see it continue to, to do well on, on that platform as well. In terms of myself, just, just my name, seanamorati.com, is kind of an aggregate of all the different things that I'm up to. It links to the lab I run at Carnegie Mellon. It links to, to future things I'm working on. And, and you know, I'm also fairly active on Twitter and always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn as well. To wrap up, let's do our final one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based okay. on our discussions from both part one and part two. I'll go first, and then I'll toss it to you. Um, you know, we talked about a lot. I think if I were to almost have like my insight out of all of this, I would say, and, and I think I've mentioned this in, in a previous episode and, I, and it bears repeating here because of all that we've discussed. And it is that when you look at, you know, what, what happened to make a company thrive and, and scale up instead of stall out as you phrase it, ultimately 
I think what we have to recognize is that the baseline is failure for most companies. And I'm sure you know, everyone's heard that stat, nine out of 10 companies fail. So you have to constantly be looking at what, does the, what would the average person do in this situation? And how do I make sure I'm doing something better or more or differently than what the average person would do? Because though, you know, these, types, these different events that you mentioned, I don't think the average person is even conscious of those types of events as they're happening. So they're not even thinking to keep an eye out for those. So that, that's my big takeaway is like, understand how might the average person be thinking about this and then do more than that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, there's a great quote in uh, Horowitz's first book, I think, Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he talks about how VCs focus on statistics and entrepreneurs focus on calculus, right? In statistics, you're asking yourself, like, well, what's the probability of succeeding, right? And as an investor, I need to think about this. Well, only some percentage of the investments I make are going to be successful. How do I make sure dollars flow into the, the most successful of those? As an entrepreneur, you're kind of like, forget about the, the averages, I'm going to be that one, right? And I think the, this catalyzing events, what, they, what my hope for that section of the book is, is that they become almost this radar that you can constantly have in the back of your mind as you're looking out into the landscape and saying, okay, as I look out here, is there an opportunity to catalyze this growth? Especially once you've gone through those first four prerequisites. You don't want to catalyze your growth when you're not ready to do it either, right? Like making a bunch of people aware of a solution that's just terrible is, is <laughs> not a, that, that's not helpful either. But, but once you're through the first four prerequisites, right? Use it as this kind of constant radar where you're like, oh, there's that event. I could, I could go do a double trigger there. Or, oh, there's that platform. Let me draft off of that. Or, oh man, let me, let me grind away at the virality to try to optimize my growth in that way. My final question for you, which is how we end every episode, fill in the blank, Sean. Entrepreneurship is blank. So to me, and I use this definition in the book and I use it almost every day uh, just in workshops and things that I do. Entrepreneurs create the world the way the world ought to be. And that mm. sounds flowery to people, but think about it. From the Tesla in your garage to the Peloton in your den to the iPhone in your pocket, there's an entrepreneur behind each of those who made the world. And I think to your diversity and inclusion question earlier, one of the things I've become really passionate about over the last couple of years, uh, as I've kind of reflected on this for myself, is let's make sure that the people who are doing that are representative of kind of society at large, yeah. right? Like gender, you know, personal preference, like all, race, all those things, but also age for what it's worth. Like we can't relegate entrepreneurship to 23-year-olds either because they end up building they end up building startups that basically are things my mom used to do for me um, or my dad used to do for me right uh like we need to make sure that like 55 year old middle managers at you know a fortune 500 company think about themselves as entrepreneurs right and that's why we've created the corporate yeah. startup lab like so so we need to we need to make sure everyone thinks about themselves as entrepreneurship and make entrepreneurship more equally distributed because like it or not, and it feels flowery, but I think it's, it's just, it's hard to dispute. Entrepreneurs make the world the way the world ought to be. Entrepreneurs make the world the way they ought to be. He is Sean Amirati, investor, entrepreneur, and author. His book, once again, is The Science of Growth. So everyone's aware, we talked about one section of the book today, so I still highly recommend you go out and grab a copy, whether it is physical, digital, or audible, <laughs> or the audible version. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for joining, not once, but twice here on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Thanks for having me. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. 
Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.